Hello and welcome to Real Time Strategy, a podcast all about the gaming industry. I'm your only host this week, Sam Mosier. Go send some love to my co-host, Caitlin Redwing. She's recovering from the GDC fever that unfortunately affects so many people after conventions. And she is missing out this week because we are joined by Doug Perry, head of public relations at Perlibus America. Doug is an expert of both games journalism and games PR with his credentials, including co-founder and editor-in-chief at IGN, account director at Reverb Communications, and PR director at Warframe developer Digital Extremes. The relationship between editorial and PR is a core theme of this show, as many listeners know. So, Doug, we're thrilled to have you on and learn about your career. Uh, It is such an informative and interesting one that we'll actually be covering it across two episodes. So this week we'll be talking to you about how you got to IGN, the founding days, the making of the site that we know today, and all of your learnings that you got from your game journalism days. And on our episode in two weeks, we'll be covering then your transition into PR and how the learnings from your game journalism days translated and what you've learned since then working on live service games PR. So with that introduction out of the way, of course, Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Well, thanks for having me. This is super cool. I'm excited to talk with you, as I do on a weekly basis. Uh, <laughs> but this will be some different subjects, right? Yeah, exactly. I know we touched a base, uh, you know, touched base on some of these topics very lightly when we met in person uh, back around the Game Awards and Pearlbus's Calfian Ball in December. Um, but I'm excited to dig deeper, and uh, I'm, I know our listeners are going to get a lot of good information and entertainment out of this one too. Cool. Cool, cool. Happy to to be here. Yeah, so first off, I mean, as you acknowledge, uh, we do work together uh, regularly or just on a daily basis. Uh, Triple triple Point works with Pearl Abyss as a client, so we'll get to that kind of chronologically at the end of our interview. Um, But before we get into your career, Doug, we always like to warm people up with some get-to-know-you questions. So first, Doug, what games are you playing right now? Uh, right now, I'm playing uh, the remaster of Resident Evil 4. Um, yeah, and uh, I forgot all about how to play Resident Evil games completely. It was like, oh, this is not about being super aggressive and just killing everybody. This is about surviving, <laughs> uh, using your resources really, really carefully and maybe not killing every one of the villagers right away because you'll run out of <laughs> ammo and die. Like I did multiple times before. I was like, what? I just forgot how to play this game. Anyway, so yeah, I'm on like the second chapter. I kind of got all attuned. I've been playing Resident Evil for a while, and Resident Evil 4 is a great game. Before that, I was um, I just finished Marvel's Midnight Suns, which I love. Love that game. I That's a big one. I was walking around talking to GDC, talking to everyone I could about it. Um, and I actually met someone from 2K, so that was fun. Um, a little bit of Black Desert PC. I've been playing the Xbox version. I've just installed it on my PC at work. And then I have God of War Ragnarok lined up, but I I just keep finding other things to play. So um, I'll get to that one. And then I, I like to watch my daughter play Hogwarts Legacy. Nice. She's uh, she's a really big fan of it. I don't care one way or the other about Harry Potter. Sorry for all you Harry Potter fans. You can play the game and enjoy it. I'll just enjoy watching my daughter play it. Um, it is a beautiful game. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous game. The textures, the facial animations, the landscapes, everything's just amazing. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the only other thing I can say is that when I'm playing games these days, I, I play fewer games and I really, now that I'm not a journalist, I just really sort of soak up each game and play it for as long as possible. I really didn't want um, Midnight Suns to end at all. I just extended it as long as I could because I knew I'd have to stop playing. <laughs> I love that. So, and that's a, yeah. that's a meaty game too. I know some people put 60, 70 hours into it. Oh yeah, for sure. What Doug, would you say single player, like long single player games are kind of your bread and butter? Do you have a certain type of game that appeals to you most? Um, I, I'd say I, I used to like playing first person shooters a lot. Uh, but now it's, I really like open world games. Um, open world like uh, Ghost of Tsushima uh, really was a big, f you know, there's been some good and some bad Assassin's Creed games. I really like uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Um, I like the open world component of, of Black Desert. Um, yeah, I mean, like the Spider-Man, the new sort of Insomniac Spider-Man games, which is really, I just love that. Uh, and like um, Red Dead Redemption, you know, I didn't like the second one, but I like the first one. And I think I just like wandering around and like seeing how the animals react. Yeah. And just like getting in trouble and not <laughs> having to worry about a story. Just like, oh, I can I can swim here or oh, I can't swim here. Oh, oh, this weird Australian creature that I've never heard of is going to attack me in Far Cry 3. <laughs> and I need to fight it. Okay. You know, like so. Yeah, I think the open world component's really great because I like to have the ability to change things. And I'm not like a huge RPG fan, but I could not stop playing uh, Marvel's Midnight Suns. Very nice. And then that brings me to a question. I can't help but ask every guest we have on. Uh, what's your favorite game of all time? Favorite game of all time? Um, it's a really tough question. I would say that the games that really had the biggest impacts on me were either Doom or Bioshock. Um, and Doom or Bioshock. I, I don't know if I could pick one. I, I'd say probably Doom, Doom 1. That's the game that actually got me into the game industry. That's the game where I was like, I can't stop playing. What's wrong with my body? My brain is freaking out, and I, all I want to do is just play this game. Yeah. <laughs> it's just an absolute sensory overload. <laughs> and that's, that's a cool... and. There's no limit to how I know I, I said singular game, but uh, totally fine to have two answers, and that's a fun pairing. Considering considering the lineage of first-person shooters and how Bioshock kind of redefines what people expect from not just the genre, but kind of games in general in terms of storytelling. Yeah. But Doug, outside of games, I also people want to know what else do you do in your free time? Uh, how do you keep your, your sanity, uh, you know, stable outside of working in games day in, day out? Um, that's a great question because uh, it's a, I've been in the industry a long time. And I think one of the things that's really valuable is having, I think my, my wife is, is having hobbies. My wife has really taught me to go out and have some hobbies because she's, she's always worried about me, like working too much, too hard. And I'm like, well, I don't need hobbies. And then I'm like, yeah, I do need hobbies. Yeah, I do need to have life outside of I have this job. Um, so uh, I, I returned to Southern California about six or seven years ago. And then all the things I did as a kid, I totally re-embraced. So I surf once or twice a week when it's not pouring and raining. Um, I used to play a lot of beach volleyball. So that's what I did when I was a kid. Um, total Southern California 
outdoor activities. I totally admit it. But for all my Canadian friends out there, you all love hockey, so don't give me <laughs> trouble. <laughs> I, I used to work at Digital Extremes, and they're like, oh, so you, you play volleyball and surf? And I'm like, yeah, do you play hockey? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so what? what's your point? <laughs> um, I, I am, I'm in a band called Goat Rodeo. I'm the singer, and I play harmonica in the band. Um, we, we've, we actually played our first paid gig last weekend. Um, we have a Vanagon, a VW Vanagon, my wife and I. So we... Uh, it's really her project. She likes to fix it up, but we like to go uh, camping in that. And uh, I'm like uh, like Quinn. Uh, um, I uh, I love to backpack. So so backpacking is one of the best things ever. And of course, I love to spend time with my wife and kids. Um, and um, yeah, so this so outdoor stuff. I mean, playing games is like you know like already there. Like I didn't even mention it because obviously we all play games, but. Yeah, outdoor stuff. Those are six very cool hobbies. I will after all this weather that is like barraged California this year. I've heard a lot of people bemoaning it, but I will admit hearing you share all those activities and of course when the weather permits it, uh, reminds me of like oh that's that's why I, I want to go out to California is for all those things. <laughs> right, because you can. Just, it's like Southern California. The weather is good almost all the time. So. The only other thing I'd mention is that um, my wife and I, during COVID, signed up to get um, to get a community garden, and we didn't get it until like um, last September. So we actually set up a little plot in this community garden in Huntington Beach, and we've been having so much fun. We sowed the soil, we like you know tilled the soil, we got in our really dirty and got in and planted seeds and watched birds eat all the seeds and. Finally, like we had cabbages and Brussels sprouts and beets and all these things come up. And like the other day we came back from our garden because it's been raining so much with just like like a wheelbarrow full of like giant cabbages and stuff like that. It was carrots, purple carrots, just all sorts of, you know, fun like winter plants. So that's been really fun. If you like that's, gardening. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds really rewarding. Nothing is better than biting into a tomato that you've grown yourself. <laughs> if that's on your list of things you've grown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so to get into, uh, you know, the, the formal interview itself, you, you mentioned something sure. I want to start with. Um, did you grow up in Southern California? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Santa Monica. Very nice. So... Tell us about how you got into the games industry. Was it, or just gaming in general? Because unlike some areas of the country, gaming has a bit more of a footprint in California. Was it something you're aware of as an industry or just something fun that you started playing? Yeah, um, so I, I, when I graduated, I went, I went to Santa Barbara City College and then transferred to UC Berkeley. Um, and when I was in Berkeley, I uh, started working at this place that was like a, a design house and printing house. And um, I saw this magazine uh, and it had Sonic the Hedgehog on it. It was Wired Magazine. And it had this big picture of Sonic the Hedgehog with like a suit on. And he was at a desk and he was smoking a cigar and it was like, Sonic takes over the world. And I was like, what is this giant blue thing? It's so cool looking <laughs> and creepy. And why am I looking at it on Wired? And I thought, oh, you know what? 
I, that's right, my stepson absolutely loves Sonic the Hedgehog. And I was like, oh, okay, I need to know more about this. And then my brother got a PC and he had um, Alone in the Dark on it. And he brought a brand new PC, he was all excited, got all these games. I went over to visit him and it was up for Thanksgiving. Uh, and uh, he was living with my mom downstairs. And he's like, check out my new computer and check out my new games. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, oh, what's this? Alone in the Dark. He's like, try Alone in the Dark. And he's like, oh, show this other game, Doom. And I was like, okay. And that was it. I just got, I was like, I, I was like, yeah, thanks for Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going to go downstairs for a little bit. And it's disappeared <laughs> for the rest of the night. And it was just me and a bunch of hell demons for like until <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. And that's when I was realized, like, wow, you know, if I could get a game, a job in the game industry, I would do that. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I was, um, but that's not, that's not how you get into the industry. That's how you start fantasizing about being in the industry, right? And you know, like setting up goals. Um, when I was looking for jobs, I was, uh, I was um, freelancing for a couple different companies in San Francisco, Josie Bass and um, Harper Collins or some book publishers at the time. And they, um, I was doing some freelance and some internship work with them. And honestly, I was looking through the classifieds. I was like looking for jobs. And um, I uh, applied for this job in the classifieds uh, for uh, Game Players Magazine. Game Players Magazine was created by um, GP Publications, which turned into Imagine Publications, which turned into Future Publications over the years. So it was when Future sort of started getting its foothold in the U.S. publishing business. And they started with GP Publications, which was Game Player Publications. And I applied for the job. I showed up in like a coat. It was all straight and like, yeah, I'm really focused and I can do this. And they were like... They were totally looking for someone else. They were looking for like a wacky kind of game player who like, you know, was jokey and immature and knew all the games by heart. And I was just like, I, I was so not prepared for that interview. I, I failed that interview miserably. They're like, what magazines do you like? I'm like, you know, like National Geographic and I don't know, Sports Illustrated. And they're like, cool, cool, cool. All right, well, it's been great talking with you, Doug. And I was like, oh. I don't think I got that job at all. Um, and then uh, about two weeks later, another advertisement in the San Francisco Chronicle classified section showed up and it was like managing editor for a brand new magazine. And I'm like, I know this company. I already applied for it, but it's not going to hurt me to re you know, apply. And it was for Next Generation Magazine and I applied for it. And I interviewed with the same guy, Neil West, who is the editor and the publisher, Jonathan Simpson Bent, and they really liked me and I really hit it off with Jonathan um, and they, they hired me. So I started in like September of 1994 at Next Generation Magazine as the production editor and I became managing editor after and I worked there for two years and um, yeah, that's, that's all she wrote. That's how, that's how I started. It was applying for an ad in Classified, classified in the Chronicle. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a matter of keeping your eye out. It's funny how those jobs, po I uh, ended up at Triple Point through hearing its name dropped on a podcast. It's funny how those things happen. Yeah, right, right, right. Just keep your eyes open and just like when you're looking for a job, you just like you just constantly have to put yourself out there. Yes, absolutely. Be fearless, right? So then tell me about, you know, talking about being fearless, like, 
applying for the job, going for it, getting it. What were your years at Next Generation like and where did you go from there? Huh. Um, so Next Generation was from 94 to 96. Our office was in Brisbane, California, which is in Northern California. Um, we were really small publication. There was So there's Game Players Magazine. They were right next to us uh, in the office. There was Next Gen. It was literally like an art person, Neil West as the editor-in-chief, me managing editor. We had a reviews editor at the time. Um, and then a lot of our content would come from Edge. So Edge would finish its publication. This was in the very slow pre-internet days. They would put everything on a disc. They would mail that disc in FedEx to us. And we would go, all right, which of this content do we want? And put it in the magazine, right? Because not a lot of people got Edge in the United States. Uh, and at the time, Edge was really ahead of its time. Uh, magazine was sleek, it was clean, it was beautiful, it was something you could share with your friends or people not in the industry. And you know, it was sort of like the opposite of Game Players Magazine. <laughs> um, and then we did our own, we, we did the rest of it, we did on our own. Um, but we literally grew real, f- extremely fast in the office. Um, so we just broke all the fire hazards. There was like, well, you know, we're at, we're going to have to put that desk right next to Doug and that desk next to Trent. <laughs> Trent Ward was our reviews editor and that desk over there. And like, we just crammed everybody into this office that we possibly could. I am just, the fire department would have had a fit with us. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was, you know, it was magazine. So it was like, you know, you, you the back of the magazine had to be done first. And that was all the reviews. So it's always hounding Trent for all his coverage all his reviews and the reviews were a hundred words and had a five star rating. So that was pretty controversial. <laughs> Obviously, you know, you either got a five or a four or a three or two or one. Uh, so there's not a lot of gray. Um, and uh, then, you know, we left all the news and the features for the front of the magazine because that was the last to go. So m- my job was really to ensure that people were making their deadlines that, um, that the, that each time a section of the magazine was done, we would send that off to production and the printers, and then they would they would get it ready for printing. Um, so much has changed since then, but um, so it was like last part, second, third, you know, the first half, then the news, and then the cover, and that's how it would all get set up. And my job was to make sure that everything was copied. I copied and read everything in the whole magazine every month and made sure it was clean. I made sure all the artists had the art they had, they needed. Uh, I made sure that all the captions were written, all that there was no typos. I mean, we, we did really interesting. Um, I thought it was really interesting at the time. Maybe not so much interesting now, but at the time it was like we had a lot of sections where it, we would just have the same copy. Like, here's the letter section. What is the letter section? It's like a little description, right? So my, my editor-in-chief, Neil, was like, Doug, you need to rewrite that copy. And I'm like, I rewrite it every month. I didn't rewrite it this month. He goes, yeah. Old copy is dead copy. Rewrite it. And I was like, that makes sense to me, and I will rewrite it. And I will take that as a challenge, and I will rewrite it better every time. <laughs> Even if I couldn't, I tried. You know, it was like, old copy is dead copy. All right, I don't want anything in this magazine to be old or dead. So I was like, okay, you know, good learning. Lots of lots of good learning um, learnings from the the English guys that came over from from the English sort of trade publications. 
including Neil and you know the whole the whole future is all from they're all from England so lots of good practices for those guys how long did it take so were they FedExing the disc from the UK from edge to mm-hmm. your office in San Francisco how long yeah. would that take to arrive two or three days okay <laughs> maybe four days it was a nightmare yeah it's like oh my god and the guy who put it on this guy named Judge Bridgman he was like the artist he's like Doug I'm so sorry I didn't send you the disc and I'm like yeah, I only did that like yesterday. It's like, yeah, it's just like these files are huge and it takes a really long time. And every time I have to do this, I stay up really late at night. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, but we need the disc ASAP. Yeah, <laughs> so I can imagine. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, as I've, we've talked with um, some people at Game Informer on the podcast, and, you know, I can't imagine what it was like then, you know, not using the internet as, as we do now, um, or, you know, as heavily as we do now. Uh, what meeting those deadlines was like? Um, it's like meeting any deadline. <laughs> I guess um, that's fair. It's a deadline. It's a de- it's a deadline. Um, and I think uh, I think I think the thing was that you know the way I the way I try to understand it best and make it work was that if you could break everything down from one big awful deadline into lots of smaller deadlines. Uh, it's a very practical answer, um, pragmatic answer. Then you could deal with it better. Like, all right, we have you know ten deadlines, and we're going to make them in succession. If this one goes bad, we still have the second and third we can hit, and we'll get back to that first one. You know, it wasn't just like everything do all at once. And um, you know, <laughs> the big challenge really was the game industry at the time was just early, and these. Publishers would come in and they'd be like, yeah, uh, Neil and Trent, we want to take you to um, Las Vegas or England or France to see this cover, uh, cover story. And we want to, you know, and then the unspoken word was, we want to wine you and dine you. We're going to party. We're going to go do all sorts of fun things. But that was all hush hush around me because I was the managing editor. I was like the editorial police. So they'd be like, yeah, we're going, to, we're going to France. It'll be like three days and we might miss this deadline. And I'm like, okay, well, you know the deadline and expect to see you. And they'd be, and I was like a couple of years older than everybody else. So I was Mr. Responsible. And they would go off and they'd go to this event and they'd have a great time. They'd come back and they're like, yeah, the assets are coming. And I'm like, no, man, you're supposed to bring the assets with you. And they're like, <laughs> I'm like, did you write the story? No, no, I haven't written the story yet. And I'm like, okay, cool. So... And then I, re- I actually found out later, and it wasn't like I was a terrible person. I was just the managing answer, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember my editor-in-chief, Neil West, he would, he would prevent certain people from coming into the office because they were like wild and fun and like would have invited me uh, to go on the event. And I would say yes, right? Because <laughs> I'm like, well, if you guys are going to go, I'm going to go. We'll be late together. And he would, he would literally have these people this particular woman, in fact, Danielle Woodyat, she was the head of PR for um, Virgin Interactive, and she she did she ran everything worldwide, and they ran uh, Westwood Studios, which did Command and Conquer. So they would go out to Vegas all the time, and she'd come in, and she was all like cheery and happy. But they would make her wait downstairs and not come into the office, and then Neil and Trent would like disappear, and then go off with her, and then go 
And then later I'd find out they were in Vegas and that's why they missed the deadline. And I found all of this out later because I actually worked with Danielle. She would tell me these stories. She's like, yeah, I don't know why they would let me in the office. And I'm like, I know why. Because you're like fun and bouncy and full energy and you would have invited me and it would have been over for those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had to make sure so they, the deadlines got met. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, don't tell Doug whatever you do. <laughs> so from there, tell me about like how, because IGN was, was your next career move, correct? Or yeah, I guess yeah. it would, wouldn't have been called that at the time. Yeah, it was called IGN. Okay. Because when did the... Remind me the history. There was IGN 64 and IGN. Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I know there that. was a bunch of sites underneath it. Could you could you explain those to me? It's been a while since I brushed up. Right. So, um, so uh, I started in 94. And then in 96, like in the springtime, a friend of mine, Eugene Wang, who was one of the artists... He got married, and Chris Charla, who was on the staff, he was the features writer. He's now, um, what is he, the general manager of content curation and programs at Xbox. He's kind of a big wig there. He had just joined as a feature editor. Uh, we were at the wedding, and he was like, hey, I'm going to start this new job soon. Have you heard of it? And I was like, no. He's like, have you heard? Um, we're going to start an online network. And I was like, tell me more. And he's like, well... You know, we're going to have three sites at launch. I'll be the editor-in-chief. We're looking for editors. We're going to have an affiliate network. It's really cool, and I'm really excited, and I'm going to leave next gen. And I was like, oh, no. And then I was like, hmm, I want to know more about that. So um, I talked to my boss, John Simpson-Bent. I was kind of unhappy at my current position because I was just doing all the work and not having any fun. And it wasn't like I just wanted to have fun. I just wanted to have a little fun. And I also wanted to do some more writing. Um, so I, I covered the arcade beat. I just made up a beat. I'm like, I'll cover the arcades. <laughs> They're like, yeah, okay, sure. And uh, yeah, you, you go to the arcades and review games. And I was like, hell yeah, I'll do that. Um, he, I talked to Jonathan. He offered me a bunch of jobs. It's like I, I, I said, I'd love to take this job as the, the Sega Saturn editor. And then I had a couple conversations with people, other people, and they're like, why didn't you take the Nintendo job? And I was like, I don't know why I didn't that. And I just told John, I want to switch. And he's, he's like, well, I already hired someone for that. And I'm like, well, that's the job I want. And he's like, okay, I'll just switch this other guy around. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, you can do that? And he's like, yeah, I can do it. And I didn't know anything. I knew about Sig Saturn because we had a Genesis at home, and uh, I didn't really play a lot of console games at the time. So I knew very little about Nintendo games. So I'm like, I'm going to run the N64 site. I don't know that much. So I would hang out with the guys and game players and just ask them tons and tons of questions. If I, I had been a reporter. I had been a news reporter. I had written, I had worked for a school newspaper. Um, I'd written about sports and business. Um, I'd written for uh, the San Francisco uh, Guardian. I had done written poetry and I had written book reviews. I understood all the deadlines. I understood how to do inverse writing, news writing and all that. So I was like, I can do it. I just need to school up on Nintendo stuff. So um, I got hired over at IGN. It was IGN.com at the time. Um, and the thing about the Nintendo site, it was called N64.com, right? Um, and Jonathan, in his brilliance, had secured a bunch of great URLs 
before people realized that that was like a place of gold. Uh, and he secured N64.com before people were really calling Nintendo 64 N64. And Nintendo, of course, had its own publication called Nintendo Power. Mm-hmm. So that was NintendoPowerOnline.com, right? And they had a great magazine. We always used to read it. It was totally awesome. But they didn't have N64.com. And we showed up and we just started writing every day about Nintendo stuff. Um, so uh, what what happened was... Now, now your question was... Why was it renamed to IGN64.com, right? Well, what happened was um, we were we were a my John my Jonathan said before I got the job, it's like, can, do you think you can do this? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, do you think you can write five stories a day? And I'm like, yeah, I can write five stories a day. I just like said, yeah, I can do it. But I had no idea if I could do it. I was like, <laughs> it wasn't like. Oh, well, let me think about that. I was like, I will just do that. I will figure out a way to do that. I have no idea if there's that much content to write, but <laughs> if that's what it takes, I'll do it. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, got on the job. We, we launched. The, it was the first IGN site to launch in I think September, October '96. The Nintendo 64 launched in November that year. Um, we got our first console from Nintendo. They sent it to us, um, which was a really big deal because they recognized us as an online site. Which online sites were nothing. Then they're just garbage, or no one cared. It was like, what's an online site? Um, and uh, our site was awful. It was flat. If you made a mistake, you couldn't correct it. It was just like lots of little links everywhere. There was you no, know, you know, no JavaScript, no video, nothing. It was just like cardboard. Um, and uh, we were out for like six months, eight months, a year before um, before my boss got a letter from Nintendo, and it was basically a cease and desist letter. Please stop using n64.com because that belongs to us. And please change your logo from the Mario hat, which had N64 on it, to something else because we own that as an intellectual property. So now he got that letter sometime in the spring and he did not tell me about it. So I had no idea that that was the case. Um, and right around that same time, I had scheduled a trip to go visit Nintendo. I was going to so ask I if it up, affected your relationship with them. <laughs> <laughs> so I went up to Nintendo and I visited the guys that did Top Gear, the racing game. And I was all excited. I'm like, I'm on Nintendo. Yeah, like a total fanboy. And I was in there all happy really like psyched they showed me around and I'm like so cool and then I sat down with Beth Llewellyn who was the PR manager at the time and the editor of Nintendo Power and I was like oh this is going to be an interesting conversation but whatever I don't care just I had no idea about this loss this legal action right I went in there they're like yeah it's really nice to meet you blah 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 and then they were like yeah so about this cease and desist Doug and I'm like what what are you talking about they're like yeah you don't know about this I'm like, no I do not and then they told me the whole thing and I was just horrified and just so scared and freaked out 
and just like, why do I not know about this? Why? Why is this happening? Um, and I left just kind of like, what the F just happened to me? Like, why don't I know about it? So I came back to work and I was like, hey, Jonathan, did you know about this? And he's like, oh, yeah, we're taking care of that. And I'm like, what? Why did you send me into the lion's den? (laughs) Well, yeah, right. Exactly. Why did you not tell me before I went to Nintendo? Um, So, uh, but what I didn't know, and I only learned about this just this last year, was that they were petrified of us. They were absolutely scared of N64.com because we had come in, we had secured that URL. It was easy. It was N64.com. It was so easy to type in versus NintendoPowerOnline.com, right? And people would just, we were updating five times a day and for five days a week, and we had all sorts of information and we were catering to what people wanted. They're like, hey, we want to know more about Mario. Okay, we'll write more about Mario. We want to know about Pilot Wings. Okay, we'll write. You know, we were, we were able to talk about stuff. Whereas the editors at Nintendo Power could not talk about most things because Japan wouldn't allow it. So every time they had came up with an idea or a feature story or whatever, they had to have it approved by Japan. And sometimes that would take a couple days or a week or two weeks. And by that time, we'd already written whatever the F we wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they were like looking at us and going, this is what I learned like at Dice from one of the writers who told me this and I didn't even know. He's like, we saw you guys and we were absolutely scared. We saw you guys as the future. We were, you could write whatever you wanted to. And we were like, God darn it. We can't even talk about how to beat the final boss in, you know, Mario 64. What, you know, and so anyway, we had to legally change our name to IGN64.com. And then when we changed all the sites to like PlayStation.IGN.com, we were, this is terrible URL. It was like, IGN64.IGN.com. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 some good times. So then, so you were writing news for Nintendo, and thank you for, so always IGN just also had the URL N64.com, which is such a great story. From there, when did you go from the Nintendo beat to more of an editor to editor-in-chief role at IGN? Right, right, right. Um, so, uh, so um, we brought Julian Rignall on um, as the editor-in-chief. Of the, so the first editor-in-chief was Chris Charla, and then it was Colin Campbell who had run an, the Next Generation site. He started running our, our channels. So N64.com launched, then we launched Saturn, Saturn World, then we launched PlayStation Power. Um, so there was the three sites. Um, we had one webmaster, one artist, th- one editor per channel, so it was five plus a sales guy. Um, and uh, then we decided to create this affiliate network, which was like an ad network, right? So we brought all these sites on, the more advertising we got, we'd split revenue with them. And then we had, then we brought on gameplayers.com, which was our internal site. And we brought on Next Generation Online as well. So then we had five sites. Um, and as we got bigger, we had, bigger ideas as to what we want to do with the network. Um, uh, mainly us editors, we were just writing away, playing games, writing. Um, but we were part of an idea that was supposed to you know, bring in more sites. So then internally they launched something called the 
DEN, the Digital Entertainment Network, which was um, essentially a like a like a GQ for GQ magazine online for guys, right? But uh, it was it wasn't about games. It was about everything else, right? If you like games, well, maybe you like movies and TV and cars and whatever, sci-fi, blah blah blah. So we tried to launch this network, and it didn't do very well at, at all. Um, and um, and so, but they still pursued it. And as we grew bigger and bigger, they were like, "We want you to be our editor in chief of the games." section of the site and I said okay um, I didn't have a lot of management experience at the time and I uh, did an okay job um, but uh, it was it was something where I had to figure out how to manage all the sites versus just be the person doing all the work um, and I uh, and I felt like okay you know this is kind of interesting but I still like doing the writing so what happened was um, I was the editor-in-chief for like a year and then we all just kind of agreed that it'd be better if I ran ran another site. They had a real hard problem with um, the PlayStation site that wasn't doing that well. And so I kept my title and I still helped manage and I advised, um, but I became editor-in-chief of the PlayStation channel. And then and then I handed off N64.com to Per Schneider. Um, and then as the years progressed, you know, I launched the PlayStation 2 site and I launched the Xbox 360. I switched over to the Xbox channel and then I ran, and then we launched the Xbox 360 channel. So overall, I ran five sites um, and I worked with the management um, and all the editorial, ed editorial guys all the way through. Um, and, you know, was one of those things where I learned that I was really good at doing the thing. But uh, managing it was much harder for me, and I just didn't. I didn't really want to be a manager at all. I wanted to write, and I wanted to be in the mix. Um, so it was kind of a. At first, it was a kind of a bummer, but at the same time, I was like, "This is what I would rather do." So you know, and obviously, you know, the PlayStation Two site was. The most popular, most trafficked, most successful site. The N sixty four site was really, you know, I was good at that, right? So every channel I ran became very successful because we had lots of good content, really focused content. Um, I had a news background, and I had a, I was playing tons of games, and we just we worked our butts off, and we were determined to, like, our sales team was always like, you need to be GameSpot, like they were the competitor, like they always said. You don't want to lose to GameSpot, do you? Like, we stop it. And then we're like, we don't want to lose to GameSpot. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, don't let those guys. So we were always, they were like, you know, Coke and Pepsi. We were like, screw those guys. We're going to beat them to the story. They were pretty much the same. But um, I think, and of course, we were friends with them too. We got to be friends with a lot of the guys mm -hmm. at GameSpot. But um, yeah, so I transitioned into a larger role. And then I, and then, you know, it turned out I was really good at launching and maintaining the sites as well. So um, over 11 years, I ran five sites. And so was there a favorite, like which platform or site do you look back most fondly on, whether it was N64 or PlayStation or Xbox or 360? Um, so 
I'd say that launching the N64 site was really thrilling because it was the first one. Um, and I got to play, there weren't a whole lot of launch titles for the N64. There was like two titles at launch. There was Super Mario 64, which was a pretty revolutionary game at the time, and Pilot Wings. And those games were really fun. So we spent a lot of time, our team spent a lot of time playing those games. And it was nice because we didn't have to burn through them and then move on to another game. So we just spent a lot of time working on this. Um, so in a, in a way, the, the Nintendo 64 set was my favorite because it was, you know, Wired Magazine was like, hey, you, you're the you're a successful website. We, they cited us as a successful website because we had 10,000 visitors a month. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's a lot. <laughs> um, and, then, um, and then I think... Um, Running the PlayStation 2 site was really was really wonderful because it was a really hard work, but I had hired this guy, Dave Zadirko, who now works, I think, at 2K, and a guy named David Smith, and they were super hardcore gamers. They were smart and they wanted to get come from like pretty, you know, pretty fan-based sites, but they really loved games and they loved RPGs, which is really good for me because I did not play RPGs, and the PlayStation was full of Japanese RPGs, and so they were they would go to town. But I loved that site because the second year we were out, um, the second year, so PlayStation launched in two thousand, the summer of two thousand, my the fall of two thousand one, there were so many fantastic games that had come out. Um, I'm actually just looking over my notes here. There was. Um, there were there were like thirty amazing games that came out that year. Uh, let's see here. Well, yeah. So that fall, this, this is why I love running the running PlayStation Two site. That fall, there was Grand Theft Auto Three, Gran Turismo Three, A Spec, Final Fantasy Ten, Silent Hill Two, Devil May Cry, Tony Hawk Pro Skater Three, Eco, Jack and Daxter: The Precursor Legacy, Soul Reaver Two, Oni Musha. Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty, <laughs> Max Payne, Red Faction, the first Burnout game, Twisted Metal Black, Klonoa Lunata's Veil, SSX Tricky, Frequency, the game that um, Harmonix, their very first game they put out before they put out um, Amplitude and before they put out um, Guitar Hero, Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance, Zone of the Enders, Maximo, NBA Street, Half-Life, Star Wars Starfighter, and Dark Cloud. So it was just like, holy crap, so many great games. We had so much work to do, but we were like, this is just an incredible array of like AAA games that were just, they, they weren't the first wave of games, uh, but they were the second wave. And we, we were just, that Christmas, we were absolutely inundated with great games. And so that was really fun. Um, and uh, then an SSX Tricky wasn't the first one, it was the second one. So Madden 2000 and SSX were the first big launch games from PlayStation 2. But the other, I think I liked running the Xbox 360 channel as well. Not so much the Xbox channel, but the Xbox 360 channel because that was when Microsoft really stuck it to Sony. They like, we're going to have a completely different strategy. We're going to come out with an online, we're going to come out with a new system and we're going to come out with an online system because we learned from the Dreamcast. We're going to have lots of exclusives. We're, you know, and they really challenged 
sort of status quo. Uh, of course, there were also some problems with that system, like the, the Red Ring of Death and blah, 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 blah. But it was a great system, and it was really fun to be on that launch. And I, and I got to really know a number of people um, from Microsoft uh, and got to see how they worked. Um, and it was fun for them to be kind of a challenger, even though they were super wealthy company, you know, in, you know, Microsoft Word land and Excel land, they were, they, they were noobs in the industry. So that was, that was really fun. I, I don't have a favorite, but they're all great in their own ways. Yeah, that fall of 2001 is, is just incredible. Thank you for acknowledging Klonoa 2. That means a lot to the few listeners that know that name. It's such a great name. Oh, wow, that's, you know that. Wow, okay. Oh, yeah. That's cool. a, my uh, brother and I, that's two of our favorite. That's like, why doesn't anybody remember Klonoa 2? Um, Klonoa was amazing. Yes. It was a brilliant platform. It was so good. Honestly, it was probably your team's review that put it on our radar. Otherwise, I think we would have missed it. Oh, wow. That. Yeah, I mean, no one cared. Like that was the the that period of time is when platform platformers were on their way out. Yeah, as a popular, cool, you know, animal mascots were no longer the thing. Such a shame. You named Jack and Daxter as well. That's another. It's another favorite of mine. Um, yeah. So you you mentioned you know with the teams you came on and you raised them up to be the most popular vertical there at the time. Um, what was your strategy like to serving readers on these platforms and delivering, you know, worthwhile content that helped IGN grow to what it is now? That's a good question. Um, and I, I was just at GDC and I met with Per Schneider. He's still like in charge of editorial over there, which is amazing because I, I, you know, we've we've been friends. We we had some fights and we've we've made up and we're still friends and. Uh, you know, um, he, uh, he uh, we were talking about how IGN kind of got to be IGN. Um, and I was trying to, f I was like, you know, I, we always have this conversation because at the time when we started, everyone had their own channel. So I was in charge of, you know, original charge of the N64 channel. So I wasn't writing about PlayStation games or PC games. I was just writing about Nintendo games. So I had a beat that was very focused. Um, and so my, and, and this is really, the, this is really like a sort of a, a, a holler out to um, the, the future teams because they set up these websites for us to, to do a couple things. They didn't want to pay us a lot, but they gave us a lot of leeway editorially, and they gave us a lot of responsibility. They said, this is your site. You make it successful. You have a lot of leeway to go do it. You can own it, right? And so we owned our sites. Everything that was in the Nintendo landscape, we were going to cover it. Um, We'd either talk to a developer, we'd get the news, or we'd talk to our magazine friends at least for a while before they realized we were posting stuff and they wouldn't talk to us anymore. Um, and we we owned it. We were really loyal to our to our platforms. Um, and so part of the reason I think the IGN sites really became successful is because we were so dedicated to our particular consoles. And we fought about stuff jokingly, but like, you know, when... Like when Half-Life, a very popular and amazing, probably one of the best first-person shooters ever as a story-driven game, 
when that came to the PlayStation, it was like two or three years after, but we were like, fuck yeah, we can play Half-Life, it's so awesome. We can play Half-Life. We've all played it before, but like now it's ours, right? We get, yeah. we get to cover from our angle. Um, so that passion, that sort of obsession, that kind of ownership really led to uh, a lot of loyalty to us as editors. Um, so when I when we launched each channel, we wanted to make sure that we had our readers squarely in mind. Like if you were a gamer, what do you want? You want some news to know what you want to keep up to date? You want to know when things are coming out? It's really important to know like if a game's coming out in two weeks that you're like, oh crap, that's coming in two weeks. You know, I'm saving my money or put some money away and I'm gonna get that. I want, you know, they want to know how the game scores. So today you have streamers and influencers. Of course, you still have the IGNs and GameSpots and Polygons and talks of the world, but you know, at the time it was like your main places for reviews were in magazines and online. And before it was online, it was just magazines. So there was a lot of weight put on what an editor thought of a game. So we really wanted to make sure that reviews were thorough and good and on the mark. Um, they weren't always. Sometimes we were too fanboyish, but I think um, that reviews were really important. As, as developers and publishers got more savvy about how to sort of extend their coverage between the day they announced it and the day the games came out, they would do like eyes on reviews and, you know, partnership announcements and marketing announcements and then hands-on reviews and then second hands-on, sorry, all those previews, hands-on, you know, eyes-on preview, first eyes-on, first hands-on preview, second, you know, after a while we're like, okay, we got it. We're not going to write anymore. Just going to get the have this game out. And then it was really important to have, at the time, codes were really important. You know, how do you unlock Luigi and Super Mario 64? Well, the secret was he wasn't actually in there ever. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, how do you how do you unlock you know certain cool things in like Star Fox or you know or, or whatever game it was, and then guides guides are really important. And so what we saw was that uh, during the week all the news and sort of newsy previewy stuff would do well, but on the weekends we had an incredible amount of traffic on our mm. guides. Massive, massive trick because people went home, they're playing the games, they were looking for strategies and codes and how to beat the game. So um, all of those things became really important. You know, the basics, really. Yeah, that's super interesting. I didn't never thought about that, how the traffic differentiates between weekdays and weekends. So I'm curious, kind of a few final questions about the IGN period. Uh, you mentioned it used to be magazines and then it was online and, you know, in the IGN 64 days, how you were, you know, the online site against a bunch of magazines allowed you to be faster. Were you, were you cognizant of, like, being there on the front line? Did it feel really exciting and, and competitive or did it feel scrappy and, and new? It was definitely scrappy and new. Um, we were in the same office... IGN was in the same office as uh, Next Generation Magazine, um, PlayStation Power, uh, PS6 Power, um, Game Players Magazine. Uh, I mean, we were there with a, we had a bunch of really, PC Gamer, you know, we were there with all these established magazine brands. And no one, you know, I think people thought, oh yeah, cool, the sites, well, listen to the sites, but... 
you know, they would, the publishers with Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, Activision, Capcom, yeah, they would come by and they would look at them. They'd come by and visit the magazines for a preview in their magazine. They would not visit us. They would hide us. They would, we were, we were not to be talked to. And it's for obvious reasons, right? Like if we found out that they were showing, you know, Tony Hawk 2 and those guys were getting screenshots in their magazine, which wouldn't come out in a month or three weeks. If we found out about it and, we, and they agreed to publish something, then we would, you know, then that would lessen the power of the magazine. So there was a real dichotomy of, of power there. Um, and uh, it felt bad for us. We were like, oh, they're not going to come visit us and even talk to us about it at all. Um, so we became even more scrappy. You know, we, we had to dig into our medium which was not a magazine. We couldn't be magazines online. We had to be something different. We had to be an online site. And so what were our strengths? Our strengths were that we could publish anytime. So we could publish quickly. We could publish rumors and news. Um, we could write for as long as we wanted. We could write a freaking 10 page review if we wanted to. You couldn't do that in a magazine. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. The writing quality in the magazines was better. They had a lot more time to edit it and all that. And the online writing quality was not as good, 100% true. Um, but we were way scrappier and faster. And we um, we figured it out. You know, I think what happened was there was a big transition period. So we started IGN in uh, August of or November, October 96. And then uh, by the time PlayStation 2 launch was, was 2000, and then in 2001 was that big period of big games. Well, sometime between the first year of the PlayStation launch, 2000, 2001, a lot of publishers kind of came to the conclusion that they couldn't really avoid us anymore and they had to embrace us because part of it was that our sites were growing and becoming more popular. The players that were buying their games were reading our sites. Um, uh, advertisers were getting more information from their ads they put on our sites. Um, and you can see this sort of gradual shift from magazines to online happening in a lot of different ways, perception-wise. Um, we just kept growing. We, we didn't get smaller. We kept growing. And there were more websites and the internet was taking off. And that was also during the time of the tech boom, which we have to talk about. Um, because that really affected our company. But um, I remember two big points, two big sort of breakthrough moments for us where we really came into our own. Um, one was uh, when I, I was working with EA and I was always really friendly with the PR people because I knew that um, I kept telling them what we wanted to do. They would say, no, 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 but I was really nice, and but pushy. And I eventually was like, you know, we like I've seen your game, SSX. We loved it at launch. I know you're putting out tricky. Why don't why don't you why aren't we seeing that? Like why are you showing that to the magazines? And I'm like, well we haven't really decided what we're gonna do. And they had a new PR person there named Anne Marie Stein. She had come from the movie industry and she's like, I don't care if we shake things up at all. So she actually gave us a hands-on with SSX Tricky before the magazines got it. Even though they had shown it at E3, we kind of got like this first glimpse in it. And we brought it into the office and we all played it and we loved it. And we did a couple different stories on it. We published screenshots and video. People went nuts for it and we loved it. And 
they got what they wanted, which was lots of coverage. And we got what we wanted because we knew that this was a great game. And our goal wasn't just to cover all the old brands and all the old stuff, but to introduce players to new content. Um, and that was the other thing that we realized about the magazines. Like they would cover new games, but a lot of times they didn't really give a lot of credence to anything that hadn't been really popular before. So we were able to take chances on new developers and new publishers. And sometimes they wouldn't pan out. You know, we'd cover a game and it would suck. But if we covered a game that no one heard about and um, we gave it some some love and people really liked it, they'd come back to our site to read more on it. And then, you know, what happened was we were discovering, that was part of the things I love about IGN. We were discovering new developers. We would find someone new. We'd, we'd invite them in, we'd talk to them, we'd do a piece. Sometimes didn't work out, other times it did, but like that was part of the excitement. We felt like we were helping people discover games. And so when this tricky piece came out, I remember talking to a guy, um, Next Generation, he was mad. He's like, why did you get that story? Why did Amory get that to you? And I'm like, I don't know. You should talk to her. And he's like, I'm kind of pissed that you guys got that. And I was like, yeah. I mean, sorry, man. I was like, I'm saying sorry to you. <laughs> but, and I love you, change. Blake. Blake, you know. But it was, the, it was one of those moments. The other moment was um, Rockstar was really not very established at the time they had put out they were part of 2K and the guys that come from BMG Music, um, the Hauser brothers and, and a guy named Geronimo Barrera came over and was showing us Smuggler's Run and Midnight Club. And uh, he was talking to me about Grand Theft Auto 3 and I was like, oh yeah, I heard I heard a bunch of magazine editors had gone over to Scotland to see that. And I was like, just like stoic, didn't say anything after that. He's like, yeah, well, do you want to come to Scotland and see it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to come to Scotland and see Grand Theft Auto 3. He's like, all right, we can make it happen. So they flew me out to Scotland. I was like there two days and two nights. Um, I got to meet everyone on their team, Leslie Benzies, the Housers, all the team. I took pictures. I came back and I wrote like a huge preview. I had two interviews with one of the Housers, Sam Hauser, Leslie Benzies, the producer at the time. Um, I wrote a technology piece and I wrote a music piece and I wrote like a, you know, just the cars of Grand Theft Auto, put this big featured all these pieces out and they loved it. And it was like, I, I had the same access as the guys in the magazines, but they just saw it as like another cool game that was coming out. And I, like, you know, the developers were realizing we were seeing the games what they were, not what they were in comparison to other games. And we really were like, eager to find new stuff and so you know of course grand theft auto 3 came out and it was gigantic and it was a huge and people like news publications were coming to us and asking us for interviews about grand theft auto 3 mainly for the wrong reasons like oh it's so violent and you know <laughs> do you want your kids to see this and blah 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 and it was like you guys are chasing all the old stories but it was you know a big open world game it was about gangsters that had mature themes it had swear words. It had some sex. Uh, people could run over prostitutes and take their money. It was like, you know, there's some awful things you could do. I I didn't even know you could do that really until someone told me. <laughs> you know, I'm not a depraved person. But um, 
<laughs> but uh, but it was like that. You know, we we were breaking games and bigger features on on upcoming games. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was really when we kind of came into our own. Yeah, that's exciting to be. I mean, to see that sea change in real time from from N sixty four into the PS two era to realize. I mean, that's that's still the power that games influencers, games media have is is that taste making, is that ability to yeah. recognize yeah. something that's going to be really big. And um, I think it probably takes that that scrappy attitude that you have to be to rec- you know game recognizes game. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to say we had a chip on our shoulder, but we had a huge chip on our shoulder. Mm-hmm. Just like we were just garbage. Like there was this one story. I mean, we weren't garbage. We weren't looked at as a quality, you know, medium. Um, we, uh, I remember this article came out and it was like, the, the, you know, it, it ranked like all the different kinds of media for for writers. And it was like the number one most respected writing job was like an author of a book, right? A New York Times bestseller. And then it was um, magazine, so book book writers, like novelists, then it was magazine and news writers. And then it was like four other kinds of writers. Then it was like online writers and radio at the bottom. And we were like, oh, that feels bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, we, we weren't, A, we were not getting the access we wanted. B, people were scared of, uh, of giving us information because it was ruining their pieces in the magazines. All legit. Um, and, and we, we, would, we would write anything because we were trying to establish the, the medium. So um, sometimes we, we would write four stories about Mario when the magazines would be like, why are you writing that? And we're like, because our readers want it and because we can, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, had to, had to be hungry. Yeah, and, and speaking of that hunger, tell me about the tech boom. Like you said, you wanted to touch on that, how that changed IGN and it's you know, how it was able to grow from where it started. Right. Um, so uh, so this is, I don't want to make this a long story, but I probably have to. Um, so first of all, in 99, um, we, we, you know, I was telling you earlier about how uh, our, our sort of uppers uh, and the executive team wanted to grow our network. Um, and so... We had turned the den into um, four men. So it was still like Maxim and GQ online, but, you know, oriented around video games. So we had like, and, you know, ask Leah advice column and like what to do and how to, you know, how to deal with your girlfriends. Uh, We had like a a car site. Uh, We had a gear site. We had like, a sci-fi site, you know, and we were trying to broaden out. And as we broadened out, we also decided we were going to take advantage, like we're taking advantage of this tech boom. So the idea was to split IGN off into a different company. Um, IGN means uh, uh, Imagine Games Network. That's what it originally stands for. Um, and we uh, we were part of Imagine, and we spun off. We hired a guy named Mark Jung, and Mark Jung was this. Um, former CEO of World Fair and graduate was a graduate from Princeton uh, in electrical electrical engineering um, and he he was kind of known as this 
Silicon Valley, you know, venture capital guy who could take businesses and make them really successful. So we hired him. And then we um, bought this site called uh, Power Students Network. And they were like, help, they would help graduates from high school get into college. It was all about people, you know, who were young getting into college. Mm -hmm. Like, what would you do? How do you do it? It was a network. And then we had another site called Chick Click. Chick Click was uh, run by young women. Um, they posted their own content. They, they talked about lifestyle and social political content, women's issues. Um, they were really popular with the press. So they kind of packaged IGN with these two other sites, plus IGN Insider, which is like a guide site. And they're like, we're gonna call this something brand new, and we're gonna split it off from the company, and we're gonna have an IPO. Um, and we're gonna make a lot of money on this internet boom, like this, you know, like take advantage of all these investor dollars. So uh, I think we were at IGN, the, edit, the video game site we had, I had two guys working for me. We had a Dreamcast site. We had a Nintendo 64 and a GameCube site. We had still had a Saturn site, but that was kind of going away. Uh, PlayStation and PlayStation 2 channel and Xbox channel. And um, and uh, we, they, they split us off and they moved us into a new office. Mark Jones was our new president. Um, Chick Click and um, Power Students Networks came along with us. We all got shares in the company um, and we were all pretty excited. Uh, and we just heard a lot of things we'd never heard before, you know, like share prices and market splits and all this stuff. Um, but we we went out in, I think, March of 2000, 2000 2001. In March 21st of 2000, we went out, snowball.com went out. That was the name of our company, okay. snowball.com. And we went out with 6.2 million shares at $11 um, a piece on NASDAQ. By the way, we hated the name snowball.com. Like everyone was like, that is the worst name. Where did the name come from? Because it was a snowball of other sites? I mean, Maybe. I'm throwing my arms up right now. You can't see it. I'm throwing my arms up. I'm like, we all had watched, you know, like um, the cl clerks, you know, and that was a bad sexual reference. It was not a good name for a company, but I think that investors thought it was great because it was like a snowball gathering steam, gathering snow, becoming bigger and bigger uh, in the internet. Boom. So cool. We were like, please, please, please don't call us that. You know, it was like, they didn't listen. So we went out <laughs> like right at the end of the tech boom and right before it actually kind of started crashing. Um, our shares went as high as $15 and the tech bubble burst pretty much that same month. And between March 2000 and 2002, we were absolutely miserable. We had like 400, 450 people. We were hiring a person a day before wow. up, up to that, a person a day. There was a lot of people in the middle making jackets and marketing stuff and spending money. And it was like, we were all like, we were all working like 10 hour days making content. We were like the nerdy game guys. And by the way, um, our, our side of the business always, I, I'm biased, okay, but it's true. Our side of the business always made the most money. We always had the most ad revenue. Um, and that became really clear once 
uh, the bubble burst and um, Snowball.com was had to start doing layoffs. So every quarter there were layoffs. People would come out from you know Cleveland and Florida and New York, come out to the West Coast and San Francisco to be part of this big tech boom. They got this marketing job at Snowball.com and they were laid off like six months later. And it was sad. We lost a lot of friends. A lot of people had to go back, like flew back to their homes to start over again. You know, it was pretty miserable for like two years. Um, we, uh, we, we, we dwindled down to 85 people from wow. like 400 and 450. We had to cut Chick Click. We had to cut Insider, the Insider um, Guides thing. We had to cut um, Power Students. We cut everything. Um, but but games and our gear site, whatever was doing traffic, we kept those things. The PlayStation 2 site was the biggest site at the time. We were doing really well. The video game sites all did really well. So none of that got cut. Um, it, was, it was a tough time. And um, one of the things we had to do was we had to start a subscription channel called IGN Insider. Uh, that was a paid subscription that was very controversial at the time because one day we were like, hey, all this content that you used to get for free is now over over here and you have to pay for it. And we didn't really announce it. We just put it out there and we were scared shitless of what would happen and all the things we were scared of absolutely happened. People were mad, they were pissed off, they were angry with us. But we were like, we have to survive through this tech crunch and this is the only way we can do it. So some a lot of people obviously stayed, stuck with IGN, some people didn't. Um, we actually had an IGN magazine for a while. I, I don't really get that. Um, <laughs> but uh, And then we had this big strategy change. So we had to figure out as a company uh, how, how we were going to survive. Um, and and games business was still strong, right? Like even if the rest of the tech sector collapsed, the games business was continuing to grow. The PlayStation 2 marketplace was massive. Right, um, the GameCube market was pretty big. The Xbox market had grown. Um, you know, Game Boy was doing well. Like, games were good. Um, and so uh, we had to figure out between 2003 how to, to change our strategy. So as a company, we uh, we trimmed down to 85 people, um, just the bare necessities, and then we went private. We actually went off the Nasdaq because we were down to like one dollar a share. We went to private, um, and then we started getting some investors to help us. And we started, instead of looking at us as like a, a flat, narrow kind of approach to, to you know, cool, hip, uh, in, you know, internet kid um, media, which we had done before with Snowball.com, we decided to be like the de facto video game website that was super deep and rich. So um, we started acquiring other sites. We acquired Team Xbox uh, as a, one of the smaller acquisitions. We also acquired GameSpy, which is a major, big uh, acquisition. They were down in Southern California and moved up to Northern California. We started getting really, really deep and, and rich in video game. So we had like lots of different sets that were covering games. So if you were covering, if you were gonna go on the online and look up games, you were probably gonna go to one of our sites. And then um, in 2005, uh, we were acquired by Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation for $650 million. Um, and, and that was weird because 
all of a sudden IGN was now partners with foxsports.com and americanidol.com, scout media and myspace myspace <laughs> yeah some of our guys have switched over and started working on myspace and i i created a myspace account i'm like i don't need a myspace account i just didn't <laughs> do it <laughs> i'm not a musician i don't need to be popular uh, i'm running this website well it's funny uh, you said that now you are <laughs> musician <laughs> Yeah, yeah, now I'm a musician. Now I need MySpace now more than ever. <laughs> we all need our bring our top eights back. <laughs> so, um, wh- one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was uh, was um, some of the themes that happened through that time. One was um, we were the lowest in the writing chain. We were separate from the magazines. I talked about that. We gained that credibility um, with SSX and Grand Theft Auto Three, and then we really grew doing that launch of the PlayStation. Um, period, like I told you about with all those great games. Um, and then, uh, and so, you know, that was when we really, really took off. And when we got bought, it was like a whole different thing. We were huge. Um, we were out of the, out of the, the dark. We were out of the sort of survival mode. We had been in survival mode for like three years. Uh, everyone was afraid about losing their jobs. Everyone was worried about if they were going to be the next ones or what was going to happen. Um, and I, you know, when I look back on the IGN period, I was like, I managed five sites over 11 years. I launched three new channels. I've been part of that big transition from 16-bit to 32-bit to 64-bit and beyond. I'd seen the the death of Sega's Dreamcast and the birth of the Microsoft um, Xbox. Um, I traveled to Canada and England and Scotland and Spain and France and Japan and interviewed Shigeru Miyamoto and Hideo Kojima and Yu Suzuki and Steve Ballmer and you know the guys who ran Bioware and David Jones who created GTA, the guy who, you know created um, uh, uh, Cruising USA using Jarvis. Like I really was able to for eleven years travel, interview people, become a really big part of the industry, and it was a fantastic time. Um, so I, you know, I in the end. You know, the only reason I left is because I felt like I'd done everything I could do at IGN and I needed something else to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, by that time, in 2007, I'd been in the industry for, uh, what was it, 11, 12, 13, 13 years. Wow. Yeah. So, so Doug, before we close out the era of IGN and this episode, uh, you mentioned just there a couple interviews, trips, things you covered. You mentioned the GTA 3 coverage, SSX Tricky. Are there any other beats, moments, stories you broke that you're particularly proud of from your 11 years there? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, um, there was a couple ones that I was pretty excited about. Um, I, uh, I I broke the first story on Medal of Honor. Wow. Like, no one knew about it. And I found out about it. And I, I wrote about that. Um, I, uh, I wrote a piece called the literature of video games, um, which was all about, you know, all of the, so there's like a core set of, of authors whose work influenced everything that we know about in science fiction and fantasy. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, the, the writer who created Conan the Barbarian, um, Geiger just as an artist, um, you know, Neil Stevenson, blah, 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 right? H.P. Lovecraft. So I sort of wrote this piece on the relationship, but, you know, Greek literature uh, at, at the time, um, you know, God of War had just come out. So it was 
really kind of great, a great game to that actually got me thinking about the literature games. And I was like, how do literature, because I was an English major at UC Berkeley, how does literature relate to video games? And, you know, why do video games have to just be about like, you know, some movie, you know, ripoff or, or some vague thing that no one's ever heard about. And so when I wrote that piece, I did, we had, uh, when I wrote that piece, uh, it was a lot of research and I had to, put some games in and some books in, not put everything else, everything else that everyone wanted me to put in. Like I remember having discussions with one of my editors, like I can't believe you didn't include this book in this game. I'm like, <laughs> I can't really put so much in, but um, it was a great piece for me to really expand on this idea that I don't think really anyone had written about before. Um, and what later on, when I was working at Reverb, um, the Bay Area Book Festival had just kind of gone through this change of of, uh, of its its executive team, and they were looking for something new to do um, for their book festival. So they probably went online and searched video games and literature and found that story. Mm-hmm. And they called me up and they said, "Would you like to be a speaker at the book festival?" And I was like, "Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you you want me?" To be a speaker, uh, okay. I was like, well, oh, you read that story I wrote like <laughs> 10 years ago, right? And they're like, yes, we did. And we think you'd be a great speaker. And I was like, yes, I'll do it. So it was just a pretty pretty exciting moment because um, something I read 10 years, written 10 years before was all of a sudden being recognized in another area. And they wanted me to talk about it as an expert in the video game field. Um, and so that was fun because they, I was working at Reverb at the time, so I was way up in the mountains in Twain Heart. So I had to drive three and a half mile hours from my home into San Francisco and Berkeley. Uh, actually, it was in Berkeley in the East Bay. And uh, they, they put me up in a hotel. Um, we had a, we had a, we had a, they showed me around like the campus. We had like a little like a cocktail party and, I got to meet all these other authors and it was like, wow, you know, this is, this is, it's so cool to be here. Part of the, because I had always loved the book festival. I love the book festival. So much fun to go there and find new books and hear authors speaking. So it was just like this thing I had no idea that I would become part of. And then later on, because I had met someone there, there's this thing called Litquake and they asked me to be a moderator at one of their festivals. So for a short moment there, I was uh, a little little video game kind of you know literature expert, so that was kind of fun. The go-to spokesperson for the intersection of literature and video games. I love that. Yeah. Um, Doug, any ob- like I could ask you questions for just hours about IGN, but we've covered a lot of the big topics I wanted to discuss on for this week's episode. Are there any other stories or key learnings from your time at IGN that? Um, looking back now, have stayed with you f- through your career since then? That's a great question. I, I mean, I, y- yes, obviously. There's, <laughs> there's been tons of things I've learned from there. Uh, p- p- the reason I'm sort of stumbling on this is because when I left IGN, I'd been there for 11 years, and that was how I saw video games and journalism and the, the industry. Um, and it, what I learned was that I had to unlearn a lot of things I had learned at IGN. I had to sort of decouple myself from my identity as a journalist there 
and you know what what my what I wanted to do in my life and in and the business. And it was uh, very uh, difficult because I essentially gone through several generations of consoles. We'd launched, you know, these websites from zero to the most popular sort of gaming medium. Um, I kind of was like, I felt like I was at the top of the industry. And when I left, uh, I, uh, I left on my own accord. I joined, joined this new site, but I just didn't feel the same way about things. One of the things was that I, I needed years to recover. It was like, it was like I need to recover from my GN, like mentally recover from it because it was so much work, it was so intense for so long. We had gone through so much together, and I was like, I didn't realize how exhausted I was. I was exhausted. I was exhausted for like three years, you know. And, and I remember being at GameTap, and I was like, Oh, I'll review Grand Theft Auto Four, and the editor, the reviews editor, was like, Okay. And you know, week after week would go by, and I hadn't turned it in. He's like, What are you doing? And I'm like. I'm playing the game. And he's like, well, we need that review in. And I was like, internally, I was like, I don't, I don't ever want to review this game. I just want to play it. I just want to play games. Mm. I don't want to have to review it anymore. I didn't say that to him. I didn't realize that was what I was thinking. But at the time, I was trying to figure out how to be a person that wasn't IGN anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that took a really long time. So... I think what I was able to take from IGN um, was that it was the industry constantly changes. I um, mean, I'd been in kind of a bubble for like 11 years. I'd experienced it, but I was all safe at IGN. Whereas I had friends who were freelancers that had gone from job to job to job, or they left the industry, or you know, they were doing something else as a career. They transferred into production, or they were writing games, they were in PR. Social media wasn't even a thing at the time. Um, so I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And it took me a while to realize that uh, I really loved being an editorial, but I didn't really want to be an editorial anymore. Not in the same capacity. Um, so I freelanced and I did mock reviews. Um, and I, uh, I think my, my learnings were really like, tr you know, try to go ahead and take everything you learned, you know, be a fast writer, be able to pivot, you know, understand the industry constantly changes, and then apply that to something else. And I just didn't, hadn't really figured out what the other thing was yet. Um, I knew I still loved games. I knew I still loved being part of them. Um, I just didn't know where I was meant to, to be. Um, so, and I, it's funny because I would have these same conversations with a number of former IGN people and we're all like, we all have like the syndrome, like all these other jobs suck after IGN. Why are all these people not understanding games like we did? Blah, 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 blah. And it was like, it was, uh, it was, it was difficult for a lot of people to go get a job afterward and do a normal job, right? Have normal expectations. Cause it was somewhat like a fraternity. It was somewhat like a <laughs> club. It was somewhat like being in um, the super cool place where you were constantly, you know, you were working hard, but you're writing about games and how fun is that? So I had to find a new place to have fun and uh, it took me a while. Yeah. I'm sure that was a tough thing to reckon with that kind of dichotomy or the juxtaposition of 
doing something really fun that you love and being surrounded by people that share those same feelings. Meanwhile, still working incredibly long hours and being surrounded by the stress of financial pressures and corporate exchanges. Um, so like you said, I'm sure that took a while to decouple from. It took years. Yeah. There's, there's a saying that if you, if you go out with a, you know, if you go out with someone for five years, it takes you two and a half years to get over mm. them. So uh, technically <laughs> um, it took me, you know, five and a half years to get over IGN. I don't know if that was exactly the wrong time, but <laughs> it felt like the same thing. Well, I hate to leave it on that note, but it is quite the cliffhanger for our next episode. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about the getting over of IGN and where your career took you next and finding that place that brought that excitement uh, next week um, or in two weeks from now, uh, but our next episode. Uh, Doug, in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on for part one. This has been a really fun and super interesting episode uh where can people find you in the meantime is there anything you'd like to promote oh um uh, you know i'm i i'm on linkedin i guess uh i i don't really go to, i don't really use twitter that much anymore um so i would say uh i would say um Go play Black Desert. <laughs> like, Go play Black Desert, indeed. I, I, I would, you know, you don't need to, you don't really need to find me. I'm like, if you really wanted to look up all my stuff, you could just type like Douglas C. Perry, type it into like your browser, and you would find all these articles pop up. So that's Great. that's how to find me. Use that the Google machine. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, go find Douglas C. Perry on the Google machine. You can find our show everywhere at Real Time Strats. Uh, email us questions for Doug for our next episode at podcast at triplepointpr.com. And until then, thank you all so much for listening.